Life doesn't come at us in a nice fixed order of introduction, three points, a poem, and a prayer. As Dave Wordson takes us today to Romans 12, 9 through 21, Paul's message isn't neatly arranged. Like a wise father getting near the close of his letter to his children, he makes a list of the things that need to characterize our lives as we live together and as we live in the world. Probably a lot of you have already come out of the holidays and you're back in the world of business. How many of you just feel like you're rolling again? Mary and I are just beginning to roll. We've been watching some football games and both of us fall asleep at 8.30 in the evening, which is not normal for us. And that's because we had our house full with all of our seven grandkids. I had no idea. It was a great, incredible time, but it's going to take me about six months to get ready for the next time. How many of you feel a little bit of that? You feel like, man, I've got to get back to work so I get some rest. But, you know, you live in a world like you business people. You're going to have a salesman, and it gives you tickets to the Mavericks. And as you're sitting at the Maverick game, they're kind to you. They say, hey, do you want to, they buy you, you know, several steak sandwiches. And, you know, as you're, and, you know they, at the end of the game, they say, hey, let's go, to a, you know, let's go to a club. Let's go to a strip club. And you say, no, I really can't do that. And, and then they say, well, you know, I just want you to know. And, and they're treating you as though you're your best friend. How many of you have ever been with someone that treated you like you're their very best friend, but you know that it was all a con? Anybody ever had that happen? That's part of your world. It's part of your world. Do you understand that? I want you to understand that Jesus understands that. And what you need to think about is, what are you going to be like? Second of all, how many of you have ever, when you're playing football, For example, when I was playing in college, a big linebacker would come through, my tackle would miss the block, and wham, I would get just, you know, just plastered. How many of you have been watching a little bit of football lately, the last few days? I mean, notice that the person rises up. What does the quarterback do? Even though he's a little guy, he rises up and he goes, boy, that was a great hit, doesn't he? What does the quarterback do? He gets right in his face and says, I'm going to punch you out, right? How many of you understand that? How many of you in your life have ever been really hurt? You have had somebody really plaster you, and you had a rage rise up inside of you that wanted to plaster them back. Anybody identify with that? Okay, that's what we're going to talk about today. The Bible understands the world that you live in. You live in a world where love is feigned. It's faked. You live in a world where it's dog-eat-dog. Dog. How many of you have ever heard the expression, you just live in a dog-eat-dog dog world? You have to decide, as a follower of Jesus, what you're going to live for. I had somebody write to me right after the Iowa primaries, and, and they wrote this letter and said, man, the United States is like Sodom and Gomorrah. You know, it's a horrible thing. And there's elements where we are like Sodom and Gomorrah. But the basic gist of the email I got is, man, this is just a terribly evil time. And it was like, I don't know what we're going to do about it. How many of you have ever felt like that? I mean, it's just so bad. Well, one of the problems is that you believe the answer is going to be given by the Republican Party and the Democratic Party. I got news for you. I've never met a Republican or a Democrat that can deal with evil. So if you believe, like if you've been poor in your life 
the last several years and think, man, we're going to be able to find the answer. Now, I want to encourage you. You need to go into politics. We need born-again believers that really live the way the Apostle Paul is going to teach us today. But I want you to go into politics realizing you're never going to bring peace on earth, goodwill towards men in politics. If you're a policeman, you're never going to beat all the bad guys until Jesus comes back and he's going to breathe out a double-edged sword and he'll handle all the bad guys. Until then, you need to be realistic. But I want you today, how many of you would like to know how to overcome evil? How many of you have been discouraged about the evil in the world? Anybody here been discouraged about the evil in the world? How many of you had discussions with your families about how cruddy things are? Anybody heard any discussions about that? The Apostle Paul in Romans 12, verse 9 and following, is like a daddy. And it's not a three-point sermon. Paul doesn't have a nice intro. He doesn't have three points and then a poem and then a powerful conclusion. In fact, to be honest with you, what he's going to do is it's like a daddy that sits down and says, now here's about 19 or 20 things that should characterize the life of a believer. And there's no way, Mary's already told me, there's no way that I can cover all 19 of these things. So one of the things that I want to do this morning is to whet your appetites. How many of you would like to know, what does a born-again believer look like? What does it look like in real life to be a living sacrifice? How many of you have heard the message from Romans 12? You're to present your bodies as a living sacrifice. You're not to be conformed to the world. I was taught as a kid to not be conformed to the world meant that I had no idea what was going on in the game of spades. It meant that I had no idea how to dance, and all the church family said, Amen. I had no idea that the, like the movie theater was a horrible place, and that's what it meant not to be conformed to the world. Well, there's bad games of cards. There's definitely bad ga- dancing like Salome did to get John the Baptist's head cut off. And there certainly is, what was the third thing? Oh, there really are bad movies. But that's not where the Apostle Paul went. And one of the great needs, what I want to challenge you today... How many of you would like to become part of a movement that overcomes evil? Well, I'm going to tell you how to do that. It's really great that you're here. I'm going to tell you today in very concrete terms. In fact, for the rest of our times in Romans, the Apostle Paul is going to be talking to you about what it looks like, what it honest to goodness looks like to be a born-again believer. And you're going to decide... As you leave this room and as you work in your job, as you go to school, as you live in your families, as you coach teams, as you travel around the world literally, in all the different places you go, you're going to decide whether you're part of the darkness or whether you turn on the light. And I would pray that when we get done today that rather than being discouraged, you're going to say, man, what a challenge. Jesus is inside of my life. His spirit lives inside of me. This is what he wants me to to help me to do. The very first one, how many of you like the salesman that buys you Maverick tickets? And I'm not saying that all salesmen do this. I know born-again salesmen that really do love. Like Norm Sanjay, for example, wasn't a salesman, but he started the Mavericks, and he gave Mary and I tickets, and he still loves me today, and he writes me letters, and he... He's still my friend, and he hasn't given me a Maverick ticket in ages. There's nothing I can do for him. So there are those that give you tickets, and I praise God for Norm. So you understand what I'm talking about? I'm not knocking you as a believer. But how many of you like somebody that fakes love? 
For example, one of the most powerful examples of this, a friend of mine played in the Marine Band. He played the violin in the Marine Band. That's really weird. They actually gave Charlie Everett a, a clarinet, and he couldn't play the clarinet at all, but when they marched, he played the clarinet, just sat there blowing on it. But what his real job was during Jacqueline and Jack Kennedy's presidential rule, during the age of Camelot, my friend actually played literally every night in the White House that they had guests. And Charlie would often tell me, he said, Jacqueline Kennedy, how many of you have seen pictures of Jacqueline Kennedy? Well, that's not ancient history for me. I remember when you saw the real Jackie Kennedy. She was the perfect host. She was glamorous like Princess Diana. She was incredibly beautiful. She had a great smile. And Charlie would say that she would stand at the door of the White House and she would say, so glad to have you here. What a wondrous thing to have you here from Ghana. So glad you could come from London. So glad you could come from Alabama. So glad you could be here from Iowa. They closed the door and she would go, that SOB, I'm glad that's over. You know what that is? Feigned love. Look what the Apostle Paul says. It's born-again believers in Romans chapter 12. It tells us that the Apostle Paul begins to get down the nitty-gritty. Look at verse 9. The very first thing in the list is that love must be not play-acting. Love must be sincere. The NIV translated it with the positive. The Greek word means is love shouldn't be an act. So what I want every one of you to ask the Lord Jesus to help you to do is I'm not going to do that. Now, it doesn't mean that you're mean to people. The Lord doesn't want you with the born-again believe people that call people SOBs because you're honest. But the Lord wants you that when you are hosting, when you are doing business, that you really care for people. And the challenge to your life is, will you believe that if I live in the business world and I don't play act, I don't con people, that in the end... It will really be a powerful influence against evil. I just finished reading a book called Crazy for God. Frank Schaefer was Francis Schaefer's son, who's like the patron saint of evangelical intellectuals, and he founded the Christian right. Frank, his son, helped to found the Christian right. In his book, Crazy for God, Frank talks about traveling around raising money, and he talks about evangelical leaders that trained him how to act. When he went to one person, he would get down on his knees and he would pat them and he would let them pat him on the knee. And he learned how to make the pitch to that person. When he went to another person, he would learn how to make the pitch to that person. He learned how to play act. Today, Frank left evangelicalism. I'm not sure what Frank really believed. I read his whole autobiography and faith to him in his discussion about faith, he says... It's like going to the Metropolitan Museum and looking at a beautiful nativity scene. That's not what our movement's about. I love art. I believe that all beautiful nativity scenes, whether it's in the Metropolitan Opera or it's at Bethlehem Revisited, I believe that all beauty comes from the Lord Jesus. But the essence of our movement, and one of our sons grew up in the heart of one of our major leaders, and yet In his whole autobiography, he never tells me that it's about Christ dying for my sins. It's about Jesus rising again to give me new life. It's about the power of God's Holy Spirit helping my imperfect family where there is anger, 
and where my dad isn't always consistent, and where my mom is a missionary kid who has a chip on her shoulder a little bit and wants to get ahead, what I learned, my mom had one nervous breakdown after another because my dad wasn't ever home. I could have gone away from the faith. My dad did believe he needed to travel all over the world. That doesn't give me a right. How do I know that it's wrong for a husband not to really give himself to his wife and be there for her? How do I know that that's true? Because of Jesus. That's what I want everyone to be understand. Our movement is about Jesus. Has Jesus ever faked love towards you? No. The Lord wants every one of you husbands not to fake love to your wife. He wants to give you true love for your wife. He wants to give every one of you wives true love for your husband. By the way, this is the very first time in Romans where agape, this isn't just emotional love. This is self-sacrificial love. This is the first time in Romans that it's used of our love for one another and not God's love for us, which shows you that the only way you can learn to love unhypocritically, to not be a play actor in love, is to receive the love of Jesus. The next one is an easy one, is one that you all understand. You need to abhor that which is evil. You need to cling. In fact, I could even use the word be married to that which is good. How many of you think that's a good idea? We need to pray for one another. We are losing, I know in my own life, I'm losing the abhorrence of evil. How many of you were abhorred? I prayed in my prayers we began today. Remember in the Patriot, if you saw Mel Gibson's film, remember when they burned down the church with, with the, the precious young son of Mel Gibson? His, his bride-to-be was in that church. Remember that story? And all these women and children, you saw this wicked British army officer that's like a bandit in reality, and he burns down the church. Remember that scene? How many of you were abhorred by that? You should be. Do you feel that way about all kinds of evil? You see, one of the things I find in my own life is we're getting used to evil. Like 20 people were killed in that Kenya church. Do you realize that there's probably been more than 20 people killed in the Dallas-Fort Worth area just over the holidays? We live in a very violent society. And if you're a judge, if you're a policeman, like we're going to talk about next week, which is one of the things that the Lord has given to us is that we have governing authorities that they need to be taken very seriously. And, we, and I want you all to invite all the governmental officials that we know because next week I'm going to use the theme, the policeman, God's servant. And that'll include judges and firemen and everybody. We're going to learn in Romans 13 that we move from this individual ethic that I'm talking about today about the way you and I need to live as individuals Next time we get together, we'll talk about the institutions that God has given us, where we're not to take vengeance, but we have government that can produce justice for us. If you're involved in that, you need to take very seriously that you're a servant of the Lord. But we as individuals are to learn to abhor violence, and we're to cling, we're going to be married to that which is good. Look what he says in the next one. How many would agree that the world would be a better place If I abhorred evil and I clung to that which is good, right? Look what Paul goes on and says. He says, be devoted to one another. Now he gets to the way that we relate to one another. Be devoted to one another in brotherly love. 
Honor one another above yourselves. What it's saying here is that we, in the way that we relate together today, it doesn't use the word agape love here. That's a, a love that we're to have for everybody. But he uses the word that has to do with family. How many of you had close family during the holidays in your home? And how many of you feel like you have an obligation to feed them, to be kind to them? You worked on it, okay? The Lord wants you to see it's natural for you. It's a gift from the Lord that we care about our families. Do you care for one another that come to the church the same way? That's what the Lord wants to help us to do. The Lord wants to teach us through the power of the Spirit that we become devoted to one another just like their family members. In fact, Midlothian Bible Church has been built through the years on we are the family of God. That it needs to be really serious when I call you brother so-and-so or sister so-and-so, that it really means something. We need to pray for one another in that. Because as Midlothian grows and as we grow as a church family, the tendency is for it just to be shallow relationships. And I don't look upon another brother as my brother. I look upon them just as someone that I pass. And so the Apostle Paul, the early church in the, in the, in the church of Rome, one of the things that captured the unbelieving world, and one of the things I want you to pray about in 2008 is that the Lord will cause unbelievers to say, I want to become a part of a group of believers. I want to become part of Midlothian Bible Church because that's where I can find family. A lot, of, a lot of people in our culture have never had family. Their family has left them and, and abandoned them and betrayed them. We need to be the place where family becomes center stage again. It says, love each other just like your brothers. It says, honor one another above yourselves. And I wrote down in this the idea of honoring one another. It says uh, in number four in your notes there, I stressed out, outdo one another in showing honor to each other. You could even translate this, show the way in honoring one another. And I want to encourage you. When you're trying to communicate to one another, one of the things we do is we talk to each other. We tend to say, it ought to be done like this. Don't you know how to do that? When someone says to you, why don't you do it like this? Why don't you do it like this? How do you respond when someone does that? You go, don't you? Even if you say to one of your little kids, put up your toys. What do your little kids say? But let's suppose you say, wow, look at the great way. that Look at what you built there. And in about five minutes, we need to put up the toys, and I'll help you do that. Which is going to get a better response? A whole lot of you are struggling with relationships with your kids, with your moms and dads. You know why? Because you don't honor someone else. You always think about your view. How do old folks get along with young folks and young folks get along with old folks? They learn to honor the other person. My tendency when someone brings a new idea to a church leadership meeting is, hey, we've already done that 20 times. We did it in 1973. We did it in 1982. We did it in 1992. We did it in 2007. You idiot, don't you know that's not going to work? And then I can't figure out why someone's intimidated. So you need to pray for me. I dishonored them. That's wrong. You all do that. I do it. How many of you think that the world would be a better place if we learned to honor somebody else. And we learned, like, if we were going to show the way, which is part of what the Greek word means, 
that if we want to show someone the way that we learn to do it, a lot of you, your ideas are blocked because you don't honor the person you're trying to communicate to. You come across like you're putting them down. And I do that. The Holy Spirit wants to work in our life to help us have a spirit that we honor someone else. Another way that this Greek expression can be taken is that we outdo one another in giving one another honor. Try it. You'll like it. All of you in your natural world, you want to be honored. You want to be recognized. You want to be the important person. The Holy Spirit says you're a living sacrifice. You have died. You can honor someone else. How many of you think that sounds right? Do you? Huh? Try it. You'll like it. You might get crucified for it, but eventually you're going to win. Notice he goes on and says, the next thing, and I translate it, outdoing one another and showing honor to one another, get going quickly, don't be lazy. Look what he says here. He says, never be lacking in zeal, but keep your spiritual fervor. The idea here is to get going quickly. I love it. He says, in your zeal, don't be slothful. This is something that's really needed in our church. And we need to pray that we're going to have it. I feel that a lot of us, we have, we're like, I've done this a long time, so you can pray for me in this. So it's hard not to get going. We need to be zealous. How many of you have ever worked with people that have great ideas? They just don't ever do anything. Anybody work with people like that? They talk and talk and talk, but nothing ever happens. In fact, you know that you have the gift of leadership and the gift of administration and management if you're ticked off about that. So that's a great insight to you. But I want you to know that in 2008, the Lord is saying to you, husbands, when your wife has asked you for 30 times to fix the leak in the, in the window, that 20-degree temperatures are blowing through there like a gale, they're going to be ticked at you if you don't get off your duff and fix the window, and they're not going to respect you, they should because it's your position in Christ, but it's tough. Born-again believers are zealous to get things done, especially the things of God. So I want to bless you. If the Lord's given you ideas, if the Lord's given you uh, visions that you have of a ministry that you'd like to have, the Lord is saying, be zealous and don't be lazy. Laziness is the plague of American believers. If you're from the younger generation, life doesn't owe you anything. You're to die as a born-again believer. You're to die to yourself. And no one owes you a peanut butter jelly sandwich. No one owes you water to drink. No one owes you a home. you got to get off your duff and be zealous. You be the one that sees an old person's lawn that needs the leaves raked. Go and do it. It'll transform our area. If you're working at a job and you're in high school, I don't care if it is McDonald's or, or whatever it is that you're working at, you be the zealous one. That's what born-again believers should be known for. How many of you in business are uptight about laziness? Anybody here that's in management uptight about laziness? If you're, if you're one of me, like I'm a, a church person, one of the worst things that a church person can do is to be lazy. 
And I want you to know, like I, any one of you, this is 1973 when I started here. It's 35 years now. Any one of you can ask me my, my, my schedule. I promise you that Mary and I work as hard as any one of you that are out there in the secular world. I can add up the hours, and I promise you that we're putting in the time. And the reason I do that, I don't say that pridefully. I just say, like, nobody knows that. I, don't, I could slough off. I've done this a long time. But you can ask Mary. Like, yesterday is a Saturday. It's a break for you. Like, for me, it wasn't a break. Mary probably ticked at me. What did I do yesterday? She'll say, I got ready. So when I teach you the book of Romans today, I know what I'm talking about. Because that's my major responsibility to you, to bring out the flavor, to bring out the impact. And I want you to know that I'm still devoted to that. And I want every one of the team that I'm working with in the pastoral ministry, we need to be zealous. we got to get going. One of the worst problems that I've had in working with unbelieving people in business that I'm trying to reach is that there's an idea, if you're a pastor, you only work on Sundays. How many of you have ever heard that joke? A lot of unbelievers feel that. That's wrong. And so we have to work hard to overcome that. We have to work hard to make sure that we're zealous. And that relates to all of us, from the little kids to the oldest adults. It's a very practical advice. He says that we need to get going and don't be late. Be on fire with the Holy Spirit, serving the Lord. I want you to really pray for me in that. To be honest, Mary and I had all seven of our grandkids. My human spirit is... I loved having my seven grandkids. We ran a bed and breakfast for more than a week. I love it. We had a great family time. But, man, I've been falling asleep. Mary and I try to watch a football game. We say, man, this is the first time in two weeks we can just watch a whole football game and just enjoy it. We fall asleep at 8.30. My human spirit is exhausted. But God's Holy Spirit isn't. Amen? In fact, everything I'm teaching you today, there's no way that you can do it. Absolutely no way. Everything I'm teaching you goes against the way that I am in myself and the way you are in yourself. I've had so many believers tell me, I can't do that. And that's the truth. And that's why we need to be a living sacrifice. That we have God's Holy Spirit give us fervency. We let him, and the word here is, some of you that are so sedate, the word that's used for fervency is that the Spirit of God wants to bubble up inside of you. He wants to bubble up. He wants to set you on fire. And then it's rooted in serving the Lord. So we need to be careful that we're not just bubbling up in our own human emotion, but we bubble up in true Holy Spirit so that we're not just glowing in our own spiritual fervor that's meeting our own needs, but we're actually serving the Lord. Let me read through some of the rest, and I want to close with the very last one, which is the toughest one. It says that we need to rejoice because Christ will certainly fulfill his promise to us. Paul is saying rejoice always, hope at all times. And those things are related. You can rejoice because Christ is going to fulfill his promise. If, if you have doom and gloom, get over it. Jesus is going to win in the end. We have a hope. One day, it's not going to be Clinton or it's not going to be Romney or Huckabee. It's not going to be anyone on earth. It's going to be Jesus. Amen? So put your trust in him in 2008. This is a great year. Don't get discouraged about the way your society is going. Your Savior is going to come through. 
Rejoice in that. Hope in that. Turn conversations where people are doom and gloom. We've lived in the most prosperous times that the world has ever known. You all are enjoying the most... Even if you can barely eat, most of the world has never lived in the culture you live in. You'd think that America was just in death's throes, right? The economy is horrible. How many of you are really hungry this morning? Because you don't have enough to eat. If you, if, you, if you are hungry this morning, let us know. Because we got a ton of people that would love to feed you. And we, most of us are struggling. To, to, we need to feed you because we fed ourselves too much. Amen? Rejoice in that. That's not a con on America. That's God's blessing. What an amazing thing to live in a country where from east to west there can be droughts in Atlanta and there's unbelievable rain somewhere else and we have incredible crops. We can grow gardens. Amen? Rejoice. It's going to be okay. We need to endure a hard time. There's going to be hard times. It says endure tribulation. And the only thing that can help us to do that is to prayer. Give generously to your fellow believers just like they were members of your own body. I want to commend you. Ever since we started Midlothian Bible Church, there's been thousands of dollars that go through every month the account. I want all of our leaders to listen to me. It's very important that that be guided. And all of you that are giving need to understand, you can't just say, well, I want to give money to my brother, and then my brother gives money back to me, and we launder money through the church. How many of you know that that's illegal? It is. In fact, there were some Southwestern Airline pilots that founded their church several years ago so they could do that. But I want you to realize that it's very biblical for a local church family to contribute to one another's needs. That's one of the holy things that you do. Some of our members have had powerful material needs. Your response to those needs should be to give. And I want to commend you because you do that. And I want to bless you in that. And there is a benevolent group of people that watch over that. And we want to build that fund so that we can respond to needs. That's what Paul is talking about. As Christianity grew, unbelievers wanted to get into the body of Christ because they would have their needs met in a very troublesome world. So give generously to your fellow believers just like they were members of your own family. Seek out those. This is a real important one. And we're, we're losing this one. Seek out those who are strangers to show them hospitality. Brothers and sisters, there was a day when we were all excited about meeting strangers. There was a day when at work you'd say, man, you need to come to church on Sunday. You need to come at work on Sunday. You need to come. Not many of you are doing that anymore. And we need to really pray about that. And you say, well, how do you do that? It's not just inviting people to church. That's only one of the last steps. What it is, is do you love strangers? Do I love strangers? The idea is you all naturally show hospitality to your friends. You all naturally show hospitality. You give meals. You give lodging. But the early church, by the power of the Holy Spirit, gave food and gave lodging and gave love to strangers. And one of the things I want you to be praying about as new people are moving to Midlothian, in school, in little league sports and everything, that we become known as the place that loves 
strangers. Don't just say hi on Sunday morning, but we really want them to come to our small group. We really want them to come to our Sunday school class. That's a convicting one. And boy, this whole list, I really would challenge you to take this and ask the Spirit of God, just put it on your mirror and ask the Spirit of God on a daily basis, Lord, this is what I want to look like. The hardest one is the last one where it says, don't take vengeance. It says, as much as possible, live at peace with others. So there's going to be times where we can't generate peace. It says, you are the beloved of God. Don't take revenge. Don't just refrain from, I put it this way, don't just refrain from punching out your enemy. The Lord doesn't want you just to to refrain from punching somebody out. He wants you to give them food and drink, anything else they need. Do positive things. You're to love your enemies. How many of you ever heard that Jesus said, love your enemies? Now, brothers and sisters, this is the bottom line of Christ-like living. This is what it really means to be a believer. And it goes totally against my nature. My nature is if you hit me, I'm going to hit you back. If you mess with me and you mess with my family, then I'm going to take you back. And I know that a whole bunch of you are like that because you're good Texans. You know what Jesus said? When Judas betrayed Jesus, he feigned love. Remember he kissed him? So Jesus called 10,000 legions of angels, and just like that, Judas was gone. Is that what happened in the story? Could Jesus have done that? Let any of you think, what have I taught you about the Son of God lately in the hymns about Christmas? Who is he? He existed before the creation. Remember that? You think Jesus could have handled the rabble-rousers that came out some of the Roman soldiers and some of the Jewish high priest soldiers. How many of you think in Gethsemane when he sees the lights coming from Jerusalem, how many of you think that Jesus could have incinerated them? Why didn't he? As a man, when someone says, if you're so good, if you think you can throw a football so good, go ahead and throw it at me as hard as you can. What am I going to do? Throw it at them as hard as they can, especially if they're little. Because as a man, I'm short. So my whole life in athletics, I've got to prove something. I had to do that in academics. So there's a part of me in my old nature that's very competitive because I'm insecure. Slowly but surely, the Lord is saying, David, it's all right the way I created you. So don't be defensive. Don't return evil for evil. Some of you are hearing me today and you say, David, I follow you in a lot of what you teach. But man, if my girl is playing basketball and the ref makes a bad call, I'm going to cuss the ref out. And Midlothian Bible Church's witness is gone. Nobody listens to a word that I teach from God's word. I'm serious. Love your enemies. One of our church family had one of their precious family hurt, brutally hurt. And as a daddy, with all their might, they wanted to run and kill the person that did did that. And I totally understand it because I would have done the same thing. Have you ever had vengeance? Like if you hurt one of my kids, I know what revenge is. 
And this precious daddy ran to my office instead of going to kill his enemy. And he cried and said, David, I'm going to kill somebody. I've been with several of the men in this room over the years that have come to my office or come to my home and, or called because they were so angry. But instead of taking revenge, they said, Jesus is in my heart. And I need to not take personal revenge. So we're able to get down on our knees and hug one another and say, Lord, just get us through this horrible heat of anger. God says, vengeance is mine. I will repay. Your heavenly daddy is a powerful judge. Give him space. Give him time. And Paul says that you'll even heap coals of fire on your enemy. And the idea there is not on, ha-ha, I'm going to wait, then God's going to zap him. In the ancient Egyptian world, they had a custom where they would make someone that was repentant carry on their head in a headdress a layer of, of, of dirt, and then they would put hot coals on their head. And it would be a symbol that they were letting their mind be cleansed and purified of evil. By the time the book of Proverbs, chapter 25, was written, that's rooted in the Egyptian wisdom, it became a popular expression. To heap coals of fire in someone's head means that you're praying, as some of the church fathers realized, you're praying that your enemy will have their mind purified, have it fired with cleansing, redemptive love so that your enemy can become your friend. One of the greatest joys of ministry that Mary and I have had is some of our enemies are now our dearest friends. That's the greatest joy in life that Mary and I, through the years of ministry, have been able to live here 35 years and have people that didn't like us and hated what I taught and didn't like what we were doing. And instead of retaliating, and sometimes we do, because I told you that's my nature, and you need to really pray for me. I love to take vengeance. But slowly but surely, I want my dear, precious Savior to cause me to return good for evil. How do you overcome evil with good? You act like Jesus. And we're following a Savior that instead of zapping Titus, the Roman emperor that crucified him, instead of zapping the Jewish high priest, instead of zapping Judas, he stretched his arms on Calvary. That's what our movement is about. My prayer for you is that you'll cry out to the spirit of Jesus living inside of you, that you'll say, Lord, create in me. None of us can do this in our own strength, but with the power of the life of Jesus living inside of us, in real live action, we can have this become the characteristics of our movement. That's my dream. For more information on materials available through Truth Encounter, please write to us at Truth Encounter, Box 580, Midlothian, Texas, 76065, or you can contact us on the web at www.truthencounter.com. Our telephone number is 
668-7884.